0: Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 16. As we read this, I'd like us to consider and ask, what does a faithful shepherding ministry look like? What does faithful pastoral care look like? This is the very thing that the Lord confronts the people of Israel with. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so the sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, my sheep. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord." Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and will seek them out. on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There there they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong, I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Now turning with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. So we give our attention to uh, verses 11 to 21, wrapping up chapter 12 this morning. Here Paul asks a very similar question. What does a faithful shepherding ministry look like? 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, beginning in verse 11, reading through the end of the chapter. I have been a fool, and you forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle performed among you with utmost patience. With signs and wonders and mighty works for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches except that i myself did not burden you forgive me this wrong here for the third time i am ready to come to you and i will not be a burden for i will seek not what is yours but you for children are not obligated to save up for their parents but parents for their children i will most gladly spend And be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and I got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. Perhaps there may still be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is God's holy word. Let us pray and ask that he illuminates our minds to understand what his word clearly says. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you that you have given us Christ to be the good shepherd of the sheep. And as Paul seeks to emulate faithful shepherding, we ask that we would lend our ears to consider the things that are required of ministers and elders, the things that are required of its members, that we might honor you in all that we do and make our way safely to Canaan's shore. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I am not a parent, but I think nearly every conversation I've had with a parent, at least of a teenager, has told me that they've had a conversation with their children that goes something like this. At some point in the midst of a heated argument, the parent begins to say in loud tones, I have put food on your plate, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head. What is it that drives a parent to say such things? It's when a child has failed to see their parents' love for him. Here, the parent is forced to point to a lifetime's worth of unspoken tokens of their love for their own children. In the face of such ingratitude and rebellion, here we find children who are blind to the good gifts that they receive every day. To the point where the parent has to point out the very things that they don't want to point out. They just want to do it in caring for their children. What we see is this is Paul's relationship with Corinth. Here's a church that is acting like distrusting, know-it-all teenagers. So as Paul closes his defense, he addresses no longer the false teachers as he has in these previous chapters. But now he addresses Corinth itself. In doing so, he characterizes the contours of a true and faithful apostolic and pastoral Ministry. I'd like us to consider this passage in three distinct sections. First, we'll consider the matter of apostolic signs in verses 11 to 13. Secondly, apostolic burdens in verses 14 to 18. And finally, apostolic fears in verses 19 to 21. So, those apostolic signs, those burdens, and fears. Paul confesses here, saying, I've played the fool. I have been the fool. I think this is now the third week where we've looked at a passage where Paul keeps referring to himself as the fool. If you recall, Paul has decided to put on the dunce's cap and play the role of the court jester. Here's Corinth, a church that has become enamored with boasting, following celebrity superstar preachers who boast in their own uh, ecstatic experiences and special giftings. And Paul says, well, if you want to boast in your own things, let's, let's put on the dunce's cap. Let us take that to its logical conclusion. Let me show you how foolish boasting in anything but the cross truly is. And here Paul says, look, everything that we've seen in chapters 11 and 12, he says, look, you have driven me to speak like a madman. You should have been my letter of recommendation. Remember what he talks about in chapter 3. That you are the letter written by the Spirit, not with ink, but with, uh, b- 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 by the Spirit riding on human hearts, showing the changed lives that you've already evidenced. That is proof of the Spirit's work among you, and yet now you're looking for something bigger, you're looking for something better, you're looking for something flashier. And now it's as if Paul is having to present his own um, uh, uh, resume to the congregation that he planted and has pastored. And so for this whole letter, Paul, it appears, has been defending his ministry, and in some ways he has, highlighting his own love towards them in the face of such mistrust and false accusation. You can hear the exasperation in his voice at this point, can't you? What else do I have to do to prove myself? I've borne the marks and the signs of a true apostle. Those mighty works, this is is Exodus language. This is the language of redemption. If you recall, the office of apostle was a a, a, um, positional office. It was temporary. It was a transitional office. uh, that, That Christ himself had appointed a particular set of men who were eyewitnesses to his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. He appointed them and and bestowed upon them special giftings of the Spirit to authenticate the message that they were delivering. And Paul says, I have done that faithfully as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the proof of my divine commission. I performed these mighty works with great endurance and suffering, both externally and internally, all the persecutions, the afflictions, the hardships, the calamities, all those daily anxieties that weigh upon them concerning all the churches as to whether or not they are going to survive another day in the midst and amidst the threat of government oppression and persecution and in the face of schism and heresy. And now Paul has that added burden that even the church itself looks at him with suspicion Paul is having to tell them, I've not come to you to play the ruse. The ministry that I bring to you is a ministry of simplicity and sincerity. Corinth has been bedazzled by signs, but they've stumbled over the suffering that has attended those signs. We could perhaps put it like this. Here is a church that wanted a Christianity that was all crown and no cross. Furthermore, they have felt neglected by Paul, claiming that he gives so much attention to all these other churches. This is a high-maintenance congregation, isn't it? Paul says, how are you less favored by others? You remember in chapter 2, he speaks of that golden mission opportunity that he, he had in Troas, and he abandons that mission outpost. Why? Because he hears of the trouble that's taking place in Corinth. Corinth is top priority in Paul's own heart and mind. In chapters 8 and 9, even as Paul is taking a collection, uh, that diaconal collection for the poor in Jerusalem, he refuses to accept any type of stipend from the church of Corinth to support him, to put food on his plate as he works and, and ministers as a minister of the gospel. He refuses money from them. Even though he's receiving money from others, he talks about, uh, using hyperbole, I have robbed and plundered other churches, these much poorer churches who are not able to give nearly as much as Corinth could have given. Paul says, I've accepted money from them, but I'm not accepting money from you. Why? Because you're claiming that I am... A snake oil salesman. I'm out lining. Uh, the, the, the accusation is that Paul is out trying to line his pockets. He's trying to get into Corinth's wallet. So Paul refuses to accept money from them. So here's Paul who goes out of his way. He leaves another mission opportunity to come back to Corinth in the midst of a great crisis. Here's a man who refuses financial support from this church. And yet this church is saying, Well, you seem, sure seem to love all the other churches better and more than us. Paul has had quite a rough go with Corinth. Nothing he does seems to be right. Here are false teachers, what he calls the super apostles. Elsewhere in this letter, he calls them pseudo apostles. These are false teachers who have seduced the church, given them a skewered perspective on the faith. This is a congregation that has now come to think that visionary experiences and that triumphalistic swagger marks the normal Christian life rather than the cross of Christ. Here it's as if Paul is saying towards the end of his letter, what what more can I say to you than I've already said? And so as Paul closes his defense, he begins to speak of his preparations to visit them. And essence, saying, we're going to have to talk about this more in person. You see here in verses 14 to 18, he speaks of the burdens that continue to plague him. He speaks of this third visit that he is making to them. Now, if you recall, when you read Acts chapter 18, that was Paul's first visit to Corinth. That's when he planted the church. That's when he spent 18 months there in Corinth planting a church, preaching to them day in and day out, and establishing a foothold to the Gentiles. Remember, this is the first Gentile congregation in the history of the church. This is where the mission to the Gentiles begins. In one sense, the mission to the Gentiles stands or falls with the success or failure of the church in Corinth. Second time Paul had visited was when he had to make that painful visit, if you' recall in chapter two, where he had to confront them on some very gross sins of which they refused to have repented. And now he is saying that he is coming a third time. And he's afraid that unless they clean up their act, unless they learn their lesson, this time will not be pretty either. Again, throughout this letter, Paul addresses the whispers and the accusations that he was some form of charlatan. He's treated much like a one of those TV evangelist scam artists today, as if he had come to line his pockets by praying off of them and siphoning their funds. Paul says, you've accused me of swindling. If you remember in chapter 4, he says, look, we have not dealt with the word of God in underhanded ways. That's the very issue that he's addressing. He says, you've accused me of swindling you, but I'm refusing to accept your money. How am I swindling you? And then when he refuses their money, it turns out they're offended by that as well. Kind of danged if you do, danged if you don't. If he takes their money, he's greedy. If he refuses their money, he's snooty. Paul just cannot win with this crowd. So Paul makes it very clear what his policy has been and what his policy will continue to be with this particular church. He says, I have not taken your money. And I will continue to refuse money from you so that this slanderous accusation cannot stand. So that it cannot gain traction. I'll keep making tents if I have to. If he has to keep working a full-time job in retail, Paul says, then so be it. If I have to keep relying on the financial support of poorer, poorer churches to make ends meet, this is what I do because you have to know this. I am not coming for your money. I am coming for you. In C.S. Lewis's book *The Four of Loves*, C.S. Lewis makes the distinction between lust and love in this manner: lust wants the thing, the object; love wants the person. Paul's pastoral concerns this: that you, Corinth, need to know that you are loved, and it is not for what you have to offer. I do not want your stuff. I want you. It's not the job of a three-year-old to put food on the table for his parents. We'd have to have a serious talk with the parents if that was the case. The parent is not to burden the child. Rather, the child is the parent's burden. The same is true here. Paul says it is not Corinth's job to feed Paul. It is Paul's job to feed Corinth that true spiritual milk and meat of the Word. And Paul says, I will not only spend, I will be spent. I will exhaust myself and all of my resources for your upbuilding. This is for your good, not my gain. Here we find the true sign of a true and faithful apostolic ministry. As we ask is the pastor, In it for the paycheck? or the people? Paul says it's true not only for me, but also for my posse. For Titus and this unnamed brother of which he has already spoken, and we've considered in great lengths uh, in this letter. These were Paul's uh, missionary co-laborers. Titus uh, was a guy who's been with him uh, nearly from the beginning, and then this unnamed brother who had been elected by one of the other sister congregations in Macedonia has come to join them for the collection of those diaconal funds. But Paul says this letter is coming. And unless this letter does the trick, Paul says he fears that he will return to a situation that will force him to take drastic action. You see that here in verses 19 to 21. Here we come to the heart of Paul's motive for writing this particular letter. Corinth thinks that this is all about Paul's fractured ego. From one vantage point, it looks as if Paul is given a very lengthy defense about his own ministry. But Paul is saying, this is really actually Corinth about you. My whole concern is about your well-being. This letter is not being written because Paul is suffering from some sort of fractured ego. Rather, Paul's concern is Corinth's soul. Because its soul is on the line, will they follow the false teachers in a pseudo Christianity that is all crown and no cross? Will they really cling to the cross and the Christian life and what it truly means to follow Christ? Paul, Paul writes here of two fears that keep him awake at night. The first, we can uh, call it a, a fear of disarray. Uh, really, a, it's a fear of unmet mutual expectations. Here's a church with a massive communication problem. A pastor and a congregation expecting different things. Corinth wants Paul to be a superstar celebrity. To have him lift, uh, live up to these, these unrealistic and even unbiblical expectations. But Paul has a far deeper concern. His concern, you see in verses 19 and 21, is that they are continuing to indulge in besetting sins the anger the slander the maliciousness, the sexual immorality. make no mistake Paul writes to Corinth in his previous letter 1 Corinthians chapter 6 the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of God if you do not repent and amend your ways, your soul is headed for destruction. Paul says if he comes and finds this church in disarray it leads. To a second fear, his own humiliation, their own discipline. Like any parent, Paul does not want to discipline his child. Paul does not want to discipline the church. Paul says, look, I don't love doing this. This is not, in one sense, what I signed up for. I don't wake up and go, ooh, who can I discipline in church today? But at the same time, Paul says, I'm your father in the faith, and I will not shirk my responsibility. Here is a church that has been dazzled by the spotlight. They have given no consideration, no regard for personal holiness and godliness. And Paul says, this, this is what we are here for. Because we've been justified by Christ, he sanctifies us. And therefore we are to have no, nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. That was chapter 6. Not to be unequally yoked with the unrighteous. And yet here you are pilfering about very much in a culture that sees itself as a, a sexually liberated city. You read in 1 Corinthians, there are plenty of sexual sins that plague this church. Adultery, incest. Homosexuality, prostitution, even incest. Paul says these things have to stop. The grace of God covers these sins. They really do. But you have to turn from them. And if you don't, I have to come and exact discipline as a father would his child. Paul says, Look, I'm not here to be your buddy, I'm your father. Father, in the the faith, I'm your pastor. My concern is your growth and godliness. You think the Christian life is about having all these supernatural experiences, but I'm telling you that it is about holiness, in particular that you repent of such immorality. You need to amend yourself of these things before I return. Paul is coming as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Paul, in essence, is saying judgment is coming. When I come, it is as if Christ will be standing in your midst. And if you're not ready, then judgment will fall. The only thing to stop the coming judgment is repentance. It's that easy to confess your sins and turn from them. To know that there is forgiveness. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. It's that easy. Yet at the same time, it is the hardest thing on earth to do because who here would ever want to turn from their sin unless the Spirit opened their eyes to its devastating effects consequences. Who here is able to turn from sin unless the Spirit empowers us and deliver us from bondage to sin? So we see here in this passage, once again, Paul highlights those salient features of a faithful shepherding ministry. If anything, I think 2 Corinthians is is a letter for, for pastors to talk about the nature of suffering in the ministry and what a true pastoral ministry looks like. I think there are three things that we can take away here as we apply it and consider how this passage is significant for the church here in the 21st century. First, as we consider those apostolic signs of which Paul spoke, we have to remind ourselves that the apostles are no longer alive. There is no apostle alive on the face of the earth. I am not an apostle. The apostle is what we call an extraordinary and temporal office. Those who are commissioned by Christ to bear witness to his ministry on earth and his death and resurrection from the dead. I don't know anybody here who is that old. The apostles have died out And with it, those kind of miraculous signs that authenticated the the establishment, the the foundation of the church, Christ himself being the cornerstone. And yet, there is an office that still continues. It is not an extraordinary office. It is what we call an ordinary and perpetual office that is passed down from generation to generation. And that is the office of the pastor and the office of the elder. I might not be an apostle. But this passage is still relevant because the apostles entrusted to the church a message that was to be proclaimed. One that is to be passed down faithfully. That message which was inscripturated, communicated in writing the New Testament. And so it is the task of a faithful ministry to continue to faithfully pass down that message from generation to generation as Christ himself says in Luke chapter 24, the whole of the scriptures attest to two things, the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, and that forgiveness and the repentance of sins must be proclaimed throughout all nations. Christ has died and was raised from the dead for our sins that we might be justified. Therefore, repent and turn from your sins and know the God of grace That is the first sign of a truly apostolic ministry. This is why we confessed our faith earlier in the service. What do we believe regarding the church? That it is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. This is what an apostolic ministry looks like. It does not consist in bedazzled signs and wonders, but in the faithful communication of the written word of God, which is infallible and can never change. Faithful shepherding ministry might not have those uh, miraculous signs, but like the apostles, it was a ministry that was marked by suffering, where the gospel must be proclaimed and even explained with great tenderness, patience, and care. And for those of us who know the grace of repentance, repentance is painful. To be called out for our sins and our wrongdoings. Nobody wants to hear that. That's why Paul warns us in the last days, everybody just wants to have their ears tickled. But that's not what a faithful apostolic office or ministry, a faithful shepherding ministry should do and be. It is to preach repentance of sin and the knowledge that there is pardon that comes through faith in Christ. This is a great burden. This leads, I think, to the second significant feature. That we see here in this passage, the nature of the ministry is a burden. That the pastor and the elders have a deep and abiding concern that the sheep are not seduced by false teaching. The Bible tells us that we are pilgrims in the wilderness, making our way to a final destination. This earth is not our home. This is a stop along the way. We cannot let ourselves be seduced by men who want to offer a Christianity without the cross. By those who want to claim that we can have it all now. As if that this world is the best that there is ever to be offered. The message of the gospel is that there's so much more because there is a heaven that awaits. There is the resurrection of the dead that is still to come, but now is the era of suffering and the cross. We cannot be seduced by triumphalists who have claimed, to have found that magic silver bullet to be the cure-all for all of our spiritual ailments. Then claiming that those that claim that all we have to do is simply name it and claim it, and it will be ours. Or to maybe drive the point more home in our own Reformed circles that all you have to do is just exercise dominion, and it's yours. There's no difference. It's Christianity without a cross. The Christian life in this age is one of cross-bearing, both for shepherd and sheep. And so the cross must reorient our entire outlook. The cross shapes not just the start, but the whole of the Christian life. Paul himself writes to Timothy saying this, that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. A life of humility before the throne of grace leads to the mortification of our own sin, as we see our pride that continues to fester in our own hearts. In the life of godliness before watching world spells, the end of all social advancement and prestige because the world hates the foolishness of the cross. It is a folly to them. So as this relates to the church, the question we have extends both to the congregation and to our church officers. First, for the congregation, do we want flashy under-shepherds? Do we want celebrity pastors and elders and deacons? Charismatic superstars? Or Do you want shepherds who will feed you faithfully? Who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear? Likewise, I think this passage uh, confronts us. I think Steve Jones, it doesn't let us off the hook either. What's our motivation for caring for Christ's flock? Do we care for the flock, for what they have to offer? Do we care for them for them? Notice that language here that Paul gives. I, I'm not after your money, I'm here for you. And so I will spend and I will be spent. Philippians, he speaks of being poured out like a drink offering. This is a calling that exhausts ourselves and all of our resources. The question we have before us is, how much is Christ's flock worth? For Paul, the answer is, it is invaluable. That is why I will spend and be spent. To exhaust ourselves even to the point of exhaustion and even to the point of exasperation even when the sheep don't trust us, even when there exists mistrust, grounded in gross misunderstanding. Final, I think, significant feature of this passage is Paul speaks of those apostolic fears. That fear that he has to come in discipline if they, the congregation does not repent. It reminds us that discipline is a mark of the church. What do I mean when I say that discipline is a mark of the church? What I mean is this. is that is what dis- One of the things that distinguishes a true church from a false church. This is not the Kiwanis Club. This is not uh, simply, hey, come pay your dues, and so long as the dues are paid every year, you're still, you're still in it. That's great. A call to be a part of the body of Christ is open to all but it comes at a cost. The cost is our very lives. And the goal is godliness and holiness. And for those who refuse to grow in holiness, to advance in that requires discipline. Doesn't mean that church officers who are called to do it enjoy it. It is humiliating. Just like for, I think, any parent does not enjoy grounding their kids or spanking their kids. In some ways, it's, it's just as painful, if not more, for the parent than it is for the kid. And yet, a real parent will not shirk their duty. Same is true with officers in the church. For those faithful under-shepherds, just because we don't enjoy it, and it's something we should not enjoy, it does not mean that we can abdicate our responsibilities. The good news is that repentance turns the tide and that call for repentance goes to us every week. As, as we hear the reading of the law, uh, we're reminded of how vast our sins are. It is both deep and it is wide. We have violated all ten of the commandments this week in some way, shape, or form, either in thought, word, or deed, either by the ways we have fallen short in doing it or ways in which we have transgressed God's law. And so every week, in fact, every day we are called to forgive us our debts. Every week we come as the people of God, whether or not we are 13 or, or 93, to confess our sins and to hear once again that the pardon comes to us not because of our own good works, because our good works are not good. They might be better than they once were, but we still need the forgiveness it comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the good news that comes week in and week out. That the same pardon that was offered the first day you trusted in the Lord is offered every day. If you would but repent and believe, it does not matter the degree or the scope. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. But it also comes with a sober warning of judgment. That if you refuse to repent, nothing awaits but a certain expectation of fiery judgment. We don't know when the Lord will return. Just as Corinth didn't know when Paul was going to make his third visit. The question is, will we be ready when Christ comes for us, either as an individual on the day of our death, or in the last day when he comes to raise us from death? So let's take care to examine ourselves in these matters as we seek to be a truly apostolic church. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that that, uh, the light of your word would shine in the deepest recesses of our hearts, that you would convict us by your spirit of our sin and our misery, that we might turn to you and know the cleansing and healing that comes the pardon of sin that comes and is received through faith in Christ alone. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.